0: Right, this morning as we get going, it's important that we keep in mind that God is a big God. We sing, Behold Our God, and we sing of His greatness, and we sing of His glory, and we sing of His majesty, and we must keep that in mind as we make our way this morning uh, through section that we have before us. Before we do that, though, uh, we're going to be taking the Word Supper at the end of the service today, and we have, we're about 15 or 20 of these little cups short Right? So I want you to look around those, uh, around you in those blank seats. And if you just pass them to the middle, and then Brian's going to collect them on the way up, and then we'll give them out. For those who, you know, may walk in a little bit late, late, well, if you're tardy, you don't get to observe the Lord's Supper. So that's just the way it is. But we'll have plenty. It's just we don't know where everyone's going to sit. And so since we have to do it like this right now, we'll have those passed out. While they're passing those out, one of the things that you'll notice when you read the Gospels is that wherever Jesus goes, He draws a crowd, like always. He always draws a crowd. And some of the most obvious places that you might think of is like when He feeds the 5,000, that there's 5,000 men there, which means there may have been, you know, whether they're using mankind or talking about men specific, possibly 5,000 to 20,000 people. Or you think about, um The triumphal entry. What we celebrate on Palm Sunday when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the crowds flock to Him. Jerusalem probably had around a quarter of a million people in it at that time because it was Passover. Everybody had to travel at Passover. And so just... Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are there surrounding Jesus, singing praise to His name, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. You know, here comes the King. We are excited about this. We are worshiping Him. We are laying down palm branches. We're laying down our jackets. And then five days later, they crucify Him. Three days later, He resurrects. He hangs out for 40 days after that. And then he ascends back into heaven and he tells his disciples, wait in this one specific room until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And do you guys remember how many people were waiting in that room? You can't answer. You're like a pastor. We got. but 120. So here's the point. Thousands were worshiping. Thousands were worshiping. A few days later, 120. And it's this exact thing that our text this morning is going to be warning us about. That you've got all of these thousands of posers, but there were only 120 actual, legit Believers. And what the author's going to try to drive home and application for us to think about is don't think about other people, but think about you. This is the question before each one of us this morning. Am I a poser? Or am I a legit believer? Like if you think, maybe you're not a believer and you know that about yourself. And that's that's great. I'm glad you're here. This message is for you too. Those of you in here who do claim to know Christ, the question that we must ask based upon the text, is am I a poser? Or am I someone who is going to someday walk away from following Jesus in the future? Like you know the Gospel, you've been baptized, you've been in the church for a long, long time, and you walk away. The theological word for that is Apostasy. That's the, that's the word for it, apostasy. And the text is warning us this morning that apostasy is real and we need to be very, very careful. And so this text that I'm talking about this morning is Hebrews 6. It's one of the most difficult passages in scriptures, one of the most debated passages in all the Bible. I can remember when I was in college, my small group was trying to get our arms around this and we're having a hard time so we decided hey let's let's go camping and we'll spend that whole time around the fire just talking about this and so that's what we did and I can remember talking around the fire I can remember where we camped Uh, praise God I can't remember what conclusions we came to because they're probably heretical but I do remember whatever conclusions we came to going to bed bothered And in a lot of ways, that's probably where we do need to be when we come out of this text, is a bit bothered. Especially, I want those who maybe are one step away from apostasy to be bothered. And so this puts me in the quandary that many pastors face week in, week out, and that is for those who are in the congregation, in the room, watching online, but do not know Jesus, but think they do, I want to convince you you don't know Jesus, so that you might actually trust and repent and believe and have this grace come upon you and receive the salvation and eternal life. But then those of you who are legit believers, but maybe beaten down a little bit, discouraged a little bit, in no way do I want to make you doubt your salvation. You see that quandary that puts me in? And so I hope this morning as we make our way through here, I can accomplish both of these. Encouraging the weak and convincing posers that you're lost and you need Jesus. Not because I want to demean you or hurt your feelings, but because I love you and I want you to know Christ. And so this morning we're going to talk straight up about apostasy. And then at the end we'll talk a little bit about assurance, but we'll really save most of that to next week, okay? And so with all that said, we've got a lot to do today. I hope you ate a good breakfast. maybe a little bit longer than normal, because there's a lot here. So let's begin by reading it together. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 6. Really breaks down verses 1 through 12 into three sections. 1 through 3 kind of serves as a review of what we did last week. Verses 4 through 8 are straight up about apostasy, about falling away from Christ. And then verses 9 through 12 are about assurance. And so verses 1 through 3, kind of a review. Look at them with me. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And of instruction about washings and laying on of hands. The resurrection of the dead and eternal eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And so you remember last week, chapter 5. He's like, don't be dull of hearing. Don't be an adult baby. You need to grow up. You need to mature And so we need to move on to maturity, building on the foundation that we already have. Well, what's that foundation? Well, there's three little couplets given here. A couplet one talks about a foundation of repenting of dead works and instead of having faith in God, so it's all about justification by faith. Couplet number two talks about washings and the laying on of hands. Like we don't do Jewish washings anymore. We have baptism and then from there we grow. So it's about sanctification. And then couplet number 3 talks about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And so it's about glorification. So the foundation is justification, sanctification, glorification. That's a really good foundation. Now you build from there. okay? And this we will do if the Lord permits. In other words, we'll hang on to that foundation. But there's a lot more. Let's move forward. And immediately, verse 4, it gets really heavy and difficult. Difficult to both understand And then once we understand it, to hear it. Like the message of this passage. And so let's just jump into it. Verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of god to their own harm and holding him up to contempt and so there's a lot in that but the biggest question we have to answer at the get out from the start is like who is this passage talking about who is this passage talking about and what is, like who is it that The text says, fall away. And like I said, it's difficult to understand. We talked about this in the office a lot this week. And I was greatly helped. Like after I kind of got my arms around it, thought I had a good understanding, checking commentaries and listening to a couple of sermons. And a commentary by a guy named Richard Phillips and a sermon by a guy named Liam Gallagher were super helpful in clarifying my own thoughts. So shout out to them in helping me this week, putting this passage this Sermon, this message together. And so first question, who is this passage about? Option number one, some people say it's a hypothetical question. It's not really a a true question. Apostasy could never happen. But I don't think that that is the case at all because verse 9 says... Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, i.e. the recipients of this letter, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So there seems to be a clear break. Like there's this one group that apostatizes, and there's you guys, and we're not worried about this, but this is a real thing over here. So I do not think it's hypothetical. I think this is a legit warning. Another option are more Wesleyan friends, and I do say friends. We sing a lot of Wesley songs in here. But anyhow, our more Wesleyan friends would say that this passage is describing Christians who apostatize, who lose their salvation. Like genuine followers of Jesus that lose their salvation and are not followers of Jesus anymore. The problem with that view is like the whole rest of the Bible, there are so many passages that directly contradict that interpretation. Like, we we can't lose our salvation because we didn't earn it to begin with. We can't, like, suddenly unmerit God's grace because we never merited God's grace in the beginning. That's the whole definition of grace. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. And so remember, whenever you are studying Scripture, you have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. When you come to something that's difficult to understand, you... Find passages in the Scripture that are more easy to understand and you interpret Scripture with Scripture. That is how biblical interpretation, big work, hermeneutics works. And so as Angela read this morning, interpreting Scripture with Scripture, John chapter 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. We can't lose our salvation because God holds us. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Or you flip back to John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives Me will come to Me. And whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. And this is the will of Him who sent Me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given Me, but raise it up on the last day. Or Romans eight thirty eight. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this passage, along with the whole rest of the Bible, is not teaching that we can lose our salvation. Well, then what does it teach? Who are these people in this passage? Well, they're people who have apparently come to Christ. They're involved in the church. I mean, for all you and I can tell, and for all intents and purposes, they look like believers. And so think of it this way. Imagine that we have a drone. Hey, we had our state meet this week. They had a drone flying over the whole course and so you could watch the race when they were out of sight. But imagine you've got this drone, and it's up high over the border of two countries. It's a border that doesn't have walls, but there is a border there. So maybe think of like um, the Amazon or sub-Saharan Africa. And so there's not a, a wall there, but there is a legit border between this country and this country. But everyone who lives on the border, they look the same, they act the same, they dress the same, they eat the same, but there is a border, though they may not exactly know where it is. Spiritually, there is a border between believers in Christ and those who don't believe in Christ. There is a border. But close to that border, they may look very, very similar. And verses 4-8 through eight is describing people at the border who are outside of Jesus, but they look super similar to those who are inside the border of the kingdom of God. They've had some sort of spiritual experience. That's clear. You look at verse four. It says that they've been enlightened, which probably means they've been baptized. The, the reason for that is the church fathers, like if they would relate. Uh, and being enlightened with baptism. And the reason for that is like if you became a Christian, then you entered into a year of being catechized in the gospel, you, a year of being taught, of being instructed, a year of that before you could be baptized. Now, here at Providence, we don't practice a year, but it's definitely weeks, months, and then for some of our children, it is years. Right? No. Like, spontaneous baptisms happen here. And they won't. And and I understand other churches that practice that. And I'm sure they are genuine in their intention. I just think it's a bit foolish. Like, you don't do spontaneous marriages. Why would you do a spontaneous baptism? Because if you baptize someone who's not actually a believer, you leave them worse off than they were. Because now they have a false assurance. These people have had some sort of experience. Probably been baptized. That's what the word enlightenment there means. They've been catechized. They've been enlightened. So they've definitely had an experience. Maybe even baptized. Further, it says that they have tasted the heavenly gift. But you and I both know there's a difference between tasting and nourishment. Even if you go to Baskin-Robbins and try to get as many spoon samples as you can, it's still not the same as like getting a you know triple scoop ice cream, or if you go to get lucky and, and wind up at Kroger or Publix or Costco on like sample day, and you go around and you get your little toothpick, right? And you you, you know you taste it, and the the man or the lady serves like, "What do you think?" You're like, "Man, this is really good. I, I, maybe I should get some," knowing full well you're not going to, you liar. but it's still just a sample. It's just a taste. It's not nourishment. that's the same thing here. These people have tasted enough to be impressed with Christ. They like the church. They enjoy it. They even get a little bit of help from it, but they're not truly nourished. They just like the taste. It also says that they've shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, when you come to Christ... You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to indwe- indwell you, live, with inside, live inside of you, and he will never leave. You can grieve him with your sin, but he will never leave. And he will give to you the fruit, or he'll give to you, yeah, the fruit of the Spirit. love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. He will give those to you and he gives gifts, right? Preaching, hospitality, administration, evangelism, many, many, many more. But friends, is it not possible to exhibit aspects of the fruit of the Spirit without actually having the Spirit? Like, it's possible for lost people to be very loving, to be patient, gentle, to have self-control. It's also possible for people who are not actually regenerate, to have displays of what we would call the gifts of the Spirit, like preaching or healing. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, which I pulled my marker out of. and I have a brand new Bible today, so the pages are sticking. And it's in Matthew 7, not 27. <laughs> Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew You. Depart from Me, workers of lawlessness. And so these people have been around the things of the Holy Spirit They've seemingly shared in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but they don't actually have the Holy Spirit. Further verse 5 says, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. But again, they've just tasted enough to say, oh man, that's good. But they're the seed that fell on rocky soil. And so they have no root. And so they may grow for a little while, but then trouble comes, they wither, they dry up, and fall away. And so who are these people? They're people who look like Christians. They have a profession of faith. They've maybe been baptized. They're members of the church who've experienced the benefits of God's blessing in the church, yet they haven't actually trusted in Christ by faith Though they think they have. And they will one day fall away and repudiate their profession of faith. That's who this passage is about. All right, that's number one. Number two, then, what does this passage mean? Well, letter A, it means that apostasy is real and possible. Like, apostasy is real. That's why it's warned about. It's possible. Now, for clarity, apostasy does not mean losing your salvation. Again, that's impossible. But it is possible for an unconverted person to abandon their profession of faith. And that's what apostasy is. When someone seemingly a believer, like maybe in this room, so Why does the burden, seemingly a believer, abandons their profession of faith entirely and forever. Okay That's what it means to fall away. You purposefully abandon your profession entirely and forever. And now you hate Christ. You despise him and your spiritual hardness leads to an inability to repent and therefore it's impossible to be restored you've made a determinative rejection entirely and forever and there's there's two guys in the bible that most of you will know their names and they are two guys who had the exact same privileges they committed the exact same sin and they had two completely different end results. And who I'm talking about is Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot. Like They were both disciples of Jesus. They both traveled with Him for three years. Listened to Him teach, watched Him minister. They both went on missionary journeys. They both healed people. Cured people, cast out demons. All of this was the same. And then both of them committed the same sin against Jesus. They rejected Him. They denied Him. Judas by betraying Him. And Peter by denying Him with oaths and curses. Three times, even cussing out a little girl. I blanking don't know the blankety-blank man. It was not, like, it was harsh. It wasn't subtle. And so both betrayed Jesus. Both denied Jesus. But the difference, as Phillips puts it, is this one failed in his fidelity to Christ, as Christians will and often do, right? We do that. One failed in his fidelity to Christ while the other decisively repudiated Him. One did not live up to the cross, while the other despised it. And so when the author speaks of falling away, he's not talking about spiritual infidelity. Okay, He's not talking about someone who falls into sin and maybe remains there for a while. He's also not talking about someone struggling with doubts or someone who becomes a bit disillusioned for a while at the state of the church, just kind of questioning the whole thing, cold, dry, in a rut. No. What he's talking about when he says someone falls away is someone who's made a determinative rejection of Christ and are aggressively now anti-Christian. I think of some of the ex-evangelicals that you see on Twitter. Evangelizing for their new found faith of no faith. And so these people who fall away, basically they agree with the Pharisees that Jesus is guilty as charged. And He is a threat and an enemy worthy of death. And so verse 6, they just keep on crucifying the Son of God in their hearts. They keep on holding Him in contempt And so they so utterly hate and oppose Jesus that it is impossible for them to be restored again because one, they never were believers in the first place, and two, they have no desire to be. The hardening of their heart has reached its conclusion. That's why there's the warning in chapter 4, 3, do not harden your heart. And so folks, this hits home because this is real impossible for people who just play church. And so this warning is given to us to be on guard because, listen to me, apostasy can only be recognized after it happens. You can't see it beforehand. Everybody looks the same. On the border, everybody looks the same. You can only know after it happens. And so, this altar is giving us a warning here, saying, Be careful now. And point blank, he's talking to someone in this room or watching online who has a profession of faith, but down the road might repudiate Christ finally and forever. And he's saying, Don't do that. Like, check your heart. And so, like, right, let's do that. Let's check our hearts. Like, Lord, a- am I legit? Or am I, chapter 2, drifting? Am I, chapter 3, hardening my heart? Am I, chapter 5, dull of hearing, refusing to grow? And like if you recognize this morning that that this is the description of you. Like you've been around the things of God in the church for years, tasted good stuff, been blessed at times, but never actually repented and believed, then today, like do so today. Trust Christ today. Don't put it off. Trust Him today. Don't be worried about what people might think. I I, I thought I was a believer for a long time, and I'm just now realizing I'm actually not. But if if I confess Christ and baptize now, what are people going to think about me? You guys remember how I mentioned Wesley earlier? John Wesley? John Wesley was a priest, Anglican priest, for years and years and years and years and years before he became a Christian. He thought he was a Christian. He knew all this stuff. He ministered. He preached the Gospel. Like, for real. And it was only on a return trip from America back to England, as he watched these Moravians, which were kind of like reformed before the reformers, like before the Reformation. They followed this guy named John Huss over in Germany. He watched these Moravians in the midst of a horrible storm praising God. They weren't worried and he was scared out of his mind. And he's like, what is it that they have? And when he got back to England, he went to the first church he could find and now he had ears to hear, he heard the gospel, he repented and believed. Now think about if he had been like, what are people going to think about me? What what are people going to think about me? I've been a priest for all this time and I'm just now becoming a Christian? Don't be paralyzed by what will people think of me? Think instead, what will Christ think of me if I refuse? And so repent. If you've never believed the gospel, the good news that Jesus died in your place so that you can be made right with Him. And trust by faith in that. And you can do so this morning. You can do so right now. It's just belief. It's just trust. If you want to talk about that more, find me afterwards. But we need to examine our hearts because apostasy is real and possible. People who've been in in church their whole life will fall away. You know that. You've seen it. You have friends. So do I. And it's heartbreaking. Check your own heart. You can only see it in hindsight. You can't see it beforehand. And so we need to examine our hearts because apostasy is real and possible. But dear friends, so too, and this is letter B in your notes, is assurance. Assurance is real and possible. And this is what the rest of our text and really all the, all the way to the end of the chapter that we'll deal with more in depth next week, this is what it's about, what it's calling out to us. And so look at verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. Like the rain, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So it's not a question of where the rain falls, it's what happens after that. And so if it's cultivated, like if, if, if stuff grows, that's good. But if it bears thorns and thistles, It is worthless and near to being cursed, and it is to be burned. In other words, fruit, crops, produce, speaks. Again, Phillips is helpful. He writes this. Truly regenerate, genuine believers can do terrible things, as Peter showed when he betrayed our Lord three times. The record of the church has revealed this over and over and over. You look through church history, the church has done some bad, bad stuff. But a good tree that is one that is truly connected to Christ and has the Holy Spirit at work within will necessarily go on to bear good fruit. It cannot do otherwise. The bad tree, now you think about Jesus' example, good tree, bad tree, the bad tree simply lacks the power to bear lasting fruit unto God, however well-watered, it may be, however real its secondhand experience of salvation by virtue of affiliation with the church may be. And so, particularly under trial or hardship, it produces only thorns and thistles, and thus it is, as we read here, worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And so, fruit speaks, okay? And we're not talking works-based salvation. Christ alone can reconcile us to God. Nothing else can, nothing else will work. Our only hope of being made right with the God of the universe is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. The only hope we have of being made right with the God of the universe is a righteousness that is not our own. A righteousness that comes from Jesus where on the cross He takes our sin upon Himself and He gives to us, He imputes to us His righteousness and it's that that makes us able to stand before a Holy Father blameless. Not because of what we did, but because of what Christ did. His righteousness being credited to us. That's the only way we can stand before the Father. And so works have nothing to do with being saved, but if you have been saved, redeemed, reconciled, you've been made a new creation. You've been given a new heart. You have new desires. And so works should just be the natural outflow of that new heart you've been given. And so you'll begin to believe differently. You will begin to... Love differently, you will begin to obey differently. And this, the author is saying, is evidence that you are indeed a believer. And it's proven, listen to me, this is super important, over the long haul, not short term, over a lifetime. Like what does the field of your life produce over the length of your life? Apostates and true believers look the exact same in a moment. But what does your overall life bear out? Because God will cause His people to persevere to the end. And that's why I think the terms, once saved, always saved, and even eternal security are less accurate and not as helpful as perseverance of the saints. That is a better way of thinking about it. It's not just that God won't let you lose your salvation. It's that that will be proven as God strengthens you to persevere to the end. All true believers will persevere to the end by God's strength. You may slip, you may fall, you may be backslidden for a while, but you will come back eventually. You'll repent, you'll press on, you'll persevere to the end. And so the author here is seeing this in the Hebrew church. And so on the hills of the warning, he just laid down on him. He now says in verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. Note that. He says, I'm sure of this. Why is He sure of this? Verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name, how have they shown love for His name? In serving the saints, that's the church, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope. And we'll deal more with this next week. Until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience Perseverance. Inherit the promises. And so, in other words, the the call here now is, is to press on. Like there's assurance to be had, and that assurance is in Christ alone, but it's given evidence by how we live our lives over the long haul, the perseverance of the saints. And this perseverance, God will not overlook, He's not unjust. He knows that believers may backslide. He knows that believers may fall. He knows that believers may pick up false ideas for a period of time, but that won't be the final state of them. They will eventually, prodigal son, wake up and go home. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you feel a stirring in your soul. You've woken up and you're like, I need to go home. Then come home to Christ. And He waits for you like He did with Peter to forgive your sin and to restore you to fellowship with Him. And so come home to Jesus and come home also to the church. One of the marks of an apostate is that He hates the church. He rejects the people of God. He goes out from among them. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Again, perseverance of the saints. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Okay, that's the apostate. But the true believer, he's saying here in verses 9 through 12, but that's not you. You love the church, you love the people of God, you show your love for God's name by serving the saints and you're still doing it, so keep on doing it. Friends, we must fight apostasy by pressing on. There's an old saying, I don't know if it's war, I don't know if it's football, I don't know, but it's that the best defense is a good offense. That's the case here as it, as it relates to apostasy. You want to defend against any apostasy, then grow. Move forward. Press on in the faith so the full context, even going back to chapter 5, is like, don't be dull in hearing. Don't be an adult baby. Grow up. Mature. Press on. Serve the saints. This is how you gain assurance that you are not apostate. You persevere. And so persevere. Relying on Jesus, persevere. The best defense is a good offense. And so press on. Keep going. like That's the whole theme of Hebrews. Don't stop. Keep going. Why? Because Jesus is better. It all comes back to that. Jesus is better. So press on. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for... It's frankness. We thank You that You speak to us plainly. We look across the whole of Scripture. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And Father, there's a reality here about apostasy. And Father, I pray for anyone in this room who might be a little bit concerned about apostasy that you would also remind them that the fact that they're concerned is a really good indication that they're not apostate. Because they wouldn't be concerned. Apostate people hate you. They want nothing to do with you. They've fallen away. But Lord, on the flip side, we can only see that in hindsight. So help us to be careful and help us to press on. Now, to help. To show that that's not the case. Kind of like the unforgivable sin, Lord. We sometimes fear, oh gosh, have I, given, have I committed the unforgivable sin? And the very fact that we are worried about that tells us that we haven't. And so I pray that you would comfort hearts where comfort is needed. That you would convict hearts where conviction is needed. And all of us need conviction in some way because all of us, though walking with you perhaps, have still fallen short of the glory of God not only prior to salvation, but since then. And we praise you for your continual forgiveness in Christ. For your love and your grace and your mercy that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You give us what we don't deserve. You give us grace. And we praise you in Jesus' name.